Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Please join us today on the AMFT Podcasts as we honor a woman who helped redefine what family looks like, a family therapy innovator, the late Connie Ahrens. Constance R. Ahrens, age 84, was a woman of incredible strength and conviction from her youth until her final moments on November 29th, 2021. Connie lived a vibrant life, defying nearly every stereotype she confronted, forging her own way and clearing paths for all those who followed. Connie was the best-selling author of The Good Divorce and We're Still Family, She was an acclaimed international speaker and an early champion of the collaborative divorce. She was a proponent of a systems approach to moderating the negative impact of family change and restructuring life in post-divorce family times. Her groundbreaking longitudinal research encompassed interviews with parents, children, and step-parents of divorced families throughout the decades. Not a stranger to controversy, she was criticized by some commentators and colleagues for promoting or normalizing divorce. And in some cases, pointing to the title of her second book, The Good Divorce. In fact, Connie simply recognized that blended families were more common in the modern industrial world than traditional nuclear families. She coined the term binuclear family and challenged many negative stereotypes surrounding what divorced families were, noting that a well-handled divorce could be healthier for children than a marriage filled with fighting and acrimony. She was not an advocate for divorce, rather she advocated for creating the best environment in which co-parents could work in the best interest of their children. She traveled extensively and enjoyed that her books were translated into many different languages. Her community and influence spanned the globe. She was known as a caring and innovative teacher, psychotherapist, coach, and mediator. She was a former professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the University of Southern California, where she was director of the MFT doctoral program. She was a former visiting scholar at the University of Michigan and a former fellow at the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard. She received countless awards and professional accolades. She was a charter member of AFA and a longtime clinical fellow in our very own AAMFT. Please join us as we conduct the last interview taking place about two months ago with Connie Ahrens. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. So happy to be joined by Connie Ahrens, whose work has really been influential to many MFTs working with 
blended, or as we'll call as Connie has coined, binuclear families. And it's a request we get a lot on the show to talk about how you work with different family constellations. And after all, a divorcing family is still a family, and it's really important in family therapy to have a skill set to know how to work with these family constellations. And Connie's research has also been very pioneering, and there's a lot of good psychoeducation that comes out of that MFTs use all the time. But Connie, the first question always that we ask our guest, your interest in working with families, specifically divorcing families, where did that come from? How did you get your calling? You know, it's interesting, Eli, because you asked the, uh, the question, it made me think about it. Earlier on, when I was doing my research, I probably was more in touch with it. Now it's just something that's part of who I am. But I can tell you that my systemic background comes from my MSW program at Wisconsin. So, for example, I never had a course in individual therapy. All I had was a course in family therapy. So I'm one of those people who thought systemically from the beginning. The big influence for me is Carl Whitaker arrived in Madison and worked in university hospitals, and I was a social worker there on the ward. Carl was could seem like a crazy man to a lot of people. And one of the things that he did is he said, we're going to bring whole families onto the ward, not just the patient. The family is the patient. So that worked for a while. It didn't last long. He, he got a lot of resistance. As you can imagine, that was not easy. But for a while, we did see whole families. We had probably, oh, a half a dozen over a year where we actually checked the entire family into the hospital. So, but my systemic thinking came a lot from Carl. I took reading courses with him and then I worked with him directly. So of all the family therapists, I think he probably had the greatest influence on me. The other big influence for me was social anthropology, which is a whole different way of thinking than we tend to have as MFTs or social workers because they don't think in terms of health or not health. You know, they think in terms of kinship and family and language and uh, just a different way of seeing how some of the issues emerge in these families, mainly because, as Margaret Mead was known to say, we have no language. We shouldn't be, why are we saying ex-spouses after all of these years? Where's and we, we have developed, I think, more of a language in the last decade or so. You know, I think the binuclear, interestingly enough, I got from a professor of architecture. He had built a house, and I went up there to meet with him, and he was showing me the house, and he said, you know, this is a binuclear house. I said, my heavens, what is that? Well, there were two households and then one common area in the middle, and he was calling this a binuclear house. I thought, well, okay interesting concept. I'm going to try to adapt it to families, which it adapts very well. But that's where I first heard that kind of language. And it's a language that is not based in mental illness. It doesn't say anything about how the family functions. It says, this is a structure. No, and language shapes meaning. And if it's pejorative or psychopathology based, why would you want to use that to describe your family constellation? So that makes a lot of sense. And I did not know that about you and Whitaker. He's obviously a luminary in our field. Every MFT trainee, when they're studying their classic experiential models, sees Carl Whitaker. But there's only like one Carl Whitaker. He was famously atheoretical, and there were techniques that were all his own. And when I think of you as 
very structured and warm and him as very irreverent and idiosyncratic. Do you have any good Carl Whitaker stories before we begin? Carl could argue well. I mean, and he accepted those of us who wanted to take him on something. But we were working with a family and something came up about divorce and he says, there is no such thing as a divorce. And I said, what are you talking about, Carl? Of course there's a divorce, you know, and that we, that is a major concept we have to look at. Well, of course, what he meant... I now agree with is you can't really divorce kin. And this is a kinship model. And so there really is no such thing from his terminology of divorce. But the stories with Carl are like, we sat with a family once for 12 hours. We brought them in from someplace. I can't remember where. Young adult uh, was admitted to the hospital and labeled schizophrenic. And, you know, Carl didn't like labels. And so we brought the whole family in. And the difficult part is we worked for 12 hours straight. And when I say we, Carl brought everybody in. He brought the nurses in, the interns in. You know, he brought as many bodies as there was family. He brought in people to work with him. The sad part is that when we finished, we hadn't made any progress at all. That was a sad thing. And we did some grieving for quite a while over what happened. And that acceptance of it doesn't always work. You can't always get people to change sometimes they don't yeah even with the masters and he was a master to sit next to i mean you know as you said a theoretical it's not that you could say to carl well why did you do that because he would just say well because that felt right you know he wasn't going to give you a theoretical answer for any particular intervention and so we all used to try to be carl nobody can be carl but we didn't have anything to go on except just to try to mimic what he did. But it fell apart. Interesting about your career. So you started out in this clinical focus. And then what I really think is groundbreaking about your work, you're not just a good clinician. It is based in this pioneering research on predicting the adjustment of children to divorce by the quality of the co-parenting relationship. No one had done that before. So tell us... First of all, how you got, because I believe you're uh, kind of like me, more of a practitioner scientist versus the other way around. But tell us about how you wanted to do this research and then the groundbreaking findings that you've written about in your books, most prominently The Good Divorce, which holds the test of time and I still use it. We're talking about it today and recommend it to families and systems that I'm working with. But tell us about how your research career started and what those clinically relevant findings that hold the test of time about co-parenting after divorce. Well, it started in the mid to late 70s when I was at Wisconsin and was very involved in policies to change the way divorce was being handled in the court. So I I would say I first started on a policy level. Your more macro issues impacting the micro practice of working with families, as we say. Exactly right, yeah. And then I also, I got a divorce, I believe in 74, when it was still not the time of a lot of divorces yet. You know, they weren't as, 79 was the big turnover where we had a lot of divorces in that year. So I got divorced in a time when it wasn't terribly acceptable, and I came up against a lot of stereotypes. Here I was, I had two young children, and I was in graduate school, and the first thing that happened to me is they had what was called married student housing. They didn't call it graduate student housing. So I applied because the 
apartment was $89 and what I could afford. So I applied and they said, well, you're not married. I said, but I'm a parent. And actually at that time I was still married. You know, we were going through a divorce, but I really had to fight to get an apartment there. And to the best of my knowledge, I was the first woman who was able to get an apartment there with children. It, it was the men who were students, not the women. So it was difficult, but I finally was able to, and I lived there for three years and made a big difference in my kid's life. But at that point, I was then affected on a personal level where I was hearing comments about, oh, well, the, they're, you know, that's because they're from a divorced family, or that's because the parents were divorced, and all sorts of negative stereotypes. I, you know, I could see that my kids had some issues, but they were doing fine. And, you know, I didn't like that labeling, and I still don't like labeling. And so I then began to get uh, personally more active because it was really impacting me, and I felt therefore impacting my children. So I was simultaneously in graduate school studying that, working with Carl Whitaker, working with the, we set up a family institute, so working with a family institute. And those years were very exciting years. I was a charter member of uh, the American Family Therapy Academy. And those were very exciting years. This was the golden age of family therapy, too, and heading into the mid and late 70s. It was a great time to be alive, professionally speaking. We had an, an excitement about this new field that we had. Uh, and it's so different today. You know, I pick up the journals today and I think, oh my God, this is another planet from where we were in those years. So I had a chance also, also to mingle with a lot of different seniors in the field. And I, at that point, I wasn't a senior in the field yet. I was the next generation down. So I had a lot of opportunity to listen to different theories, to really become more systemically focused. And of course, that impacted my work from there on in. My, my research is based on the family system. And it was hard, to be honest with you, it was very hard like, to get National Institutes of Mental Health to understand that concept, to understand that, yes, people get divorced, but they're still a family. That was a struggle. And the language was a struggle. So it was, I, I was enjoying it because I always like a good fight around these things. You know, I like the option of being able to argue about it. And, and so there were a lot of different ideas floating around. So I got involved in that way. When I was able to do my research, by then I was, uh, I'd gotten a doctorate in counseling psych. And by then I was back teaching in a school of social work. So I was in that publisher parish mode. And I thought, oh my God, I need to find a project right now that's going to last me for a while that I can write from. And it was very fortuitous that at that point there was a call for, pro for proposals from NIH and it wanted to focus on the positives, not the negatives. So they were looking at mental health and not mental illness. And that's not usually the way it goes. So I was fortunate to get right into that little slot, which worked for my work, which is based on normalizing divorced families and not stigmatizing them. And so I was able to get a very good grant over a five-year period that allowed me to follow first to select these 98 families, which I did by just going to the list of divorces in one year and taking every fourth name. And so we came up with 98 families that I then could follow over a five-year period. And because my focus was really on the impact of family and parents on children, and not so much looking at the child and what are the issues that the child has. So I was very, you know, influenced, and that is from the family therapy model too. So I was very influenced by, let's not lay this trip on kids, let's look at what parents are doing. 
So I was able to convince NIH that I wasn't going to study the children. I was just going to study the parents, which is what I did. I didn't go back and look at the kids until 20 years later. So many amazing findings came out of that work. Tell us, for people not familiar with your work, one of the things I still use, because the way you also kind of branded it with these nice alliterative titles, clusters of different co-parenting styles post-divorce. Tell our listeners about that and how that relates to adjustment from children to divorce. Okay, so I started out noting that, I'm trying to think of how to say this in research terms that aren't too complex, looking at a continuum of relationships between former spouses and of looking at the relationship of former spouses as parents, as co-parents, and then that separate relationship as ex-spouses, which I believe there's fine lines between them, but some parents can make a very definitive line between what's an ex-spouse issue and what's a parenting issue. And so I was able to get funds, which are make a big difference in the kind of work you can do, and interviewed both parents in 98 families. And then I found out that when I went in to do the third year interview, all of a sudden there were all these step-parents that entered. So the family was expanding. And I wrote back to NIH. I said, look, I need a little bit more money because I I need to interview the step-parents now too, because they're part of this family system. And so they did that. They supported that. And I interviewed all the step-parents at three years post-divorce and at five years post-divorce. And the parents were interviewed at that point, three times, one, three, and five years post-divorce. And so I could look at change that way. I was very fortunate that I had an an excellent sample of people that stuck with me throughout. So we had a very, very small dropout rate. And we ended up, I think, with 96 out of the 98 families at the end of five years, which is pretty terrific. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty terrific. Well, it was the community I was known in, and it got a lot of publicity in the local paper and so on, that this was being done. I told them I was writing a book, and they would get a copy of the book. You know, we did all sorts of things to stay in touch with them over the five-year period. And uh, I think they became very invested in the study, that they became feeling like they really had something to contribute. And so what I found was that there is this continuum of divorced spouses that goes from being very angry and contentious to being quite friendly. Then what I did with this continuum using certain statistical methods, I was able to cluster them and came up with these five groups. And they they didn't have these alliterative names right away. They had research names that said high this and low this and so on. And I was coming to present my findings for the first time at an AAMFT meeting. And I stopped, it was in New York, and I stopped in Boston. I have daughters that lived up there. And on paper napkins, they played around with these groups. And they said, Mom, you can't present them the way you're going to present them. Nobody's going to remember it. And so they actually came up with these alliterative It was your kids. Wow. It was my kids. Wow. I mean, this was truly a family project. My kids remind me how they stapled things together and did a lot. You know, I really had them working doing all of this. But yeah, they came up with it because they were able to sort of stand back and say, they would ask me, well, what do the parents in this group look like besides this high conflict, low cooperation and so on? Uh, And so they, they actually came up with the names. And I went from there to New York and presented it for the first time. All right, so tell our for our listeners that may not be familiar with the groupings because they are very catchy and they resonate with families and clinicians alike. 
Yeah, they do. I mean, I'm always surprised when somebody comes into my office and, and says to me what kind of relationship they have. And I'm like, oh, really? They know this already. So there are groups that I came up with, with the help of my daughters in naming them, was starting at the low end of the continuum, there would be a group called Dissolved Duos. They fit our stereotype of divorced parents. They, one parent left the family, you know, had no relationship then with the children. And then the next group were the fiery foes, and they stayed tied in with each other. They didn't give up for a minute. They fought, and these are the people that went back to court for every little thing. Their fighting did not stop, and of course it impacted the children's lives very much. And then the next group, as we go up this continuum, would have been, well, what did I say, fiery foes and then angry associates, and they stayed pretty angry with each other too over the years. And not much change over a five-year period, which was interesting. And then They dealt with each other, but they begrudgingly dealt with each other, yes. I mean, every phone call ended up with some kind of fight. And then you have the cooperative colleagues. Yes. And they're sort of the role model for divorcing, divorcing couples. And, more, and one of the big changes I have seen over the years is that more and more people are cooperative colleagues in getting a divorce. This, of course, did not fit with our stereotype of divorcing couples very well. But it was the largest group, and it was people who are not close friends, but they were able to cooperate for the sake of the children. They could put their anger, personal angers, at each other as, as spouses, sort of behind them a bit. But front and center was their parenting. And they would not triangulate their children in their past marital woes. And when they would come together, the cooperative colleagues would advocate in the best interest of the children, despite how they felt about each other. Yes. I mean, and, and there's quite, quite a few of these families who I, I really found were really wonderful role models. They had found ways to do it. You know, they had found ways to not get into the same old conflicts over and over again, which is what happens. They were, they were able to sort out, and they were able to do what was in the best interest of their child. And that's the major thing about cooperative colleagues, is that they can. Now, there's a smaller group that I call Perfect Pals, and they are people that remain friends. And we ask them the question, if you didn't have children... Would you continue to relate? And these are people that said yes. So they had a relationship beyond being parents. It was a small group. It was the smallest of the five. So it wasn't all that common. And what I found that over the years, they might have started off at year one post-divorce as perfect pals, but by year five, they became cooperative colleagues. Because it's hard to stay perfect pals and recouple. So it gets in the way of the new relationship. So they backed off a little bit on the friendship and stayed cooperative colleagues, but didn't have that friendship outside of that. The perfect pals also, it's not only does that change when you recouple, but for some people with the pressure of not trying to have to work on the marriage anymore, they were always good parents to start with. So with that pressure off, it frees up some space, but I'm glad that you said that that your research found that that was not typical because I think sometimes when we're working with divorcing families, they have some unrealistic expectations. So while that is great when it happens, it is not something certainly that is the norm or something that you should aspire to. When it works, it's great, but more than not, as long as you can be cooperative colleagues, that is the most important thing. Now, 
So you had this great research and then it fed the way into doing this pioneering work of doing clinical work with binuclear families. So talk about when your approach to working with this family, was it seamless after you did the work or were there other steps in between before you start applying what you've learned through your research? Well, I probably started applying it right away, Eli, although I didn't really get that comfortable with it right away. You know, I kept changing about how I dealt with it. But certainly the research led me down that path, but I was already on my way in that direction. Because when you think systemically, then you really do believe, like Carl Whitaker believed, there there is no such thing as divorce. That this is a kinship system. So that's where the anthropologists come in, right? And this is, a, a, you know, there's a common bond, and that is the child. And the kinship system is separate from household and separate from family. So you can have more than one household and still be in a kinship system. So that's when I started to talk about ex-spouses as kin. Began to talk with divorcing couples in that way. And one of the things that I really was important to me in those early years is that when I work with divorcing couples was to have them understand that they're going to relate probably for the rest of their life. So it was easy to draw a picture for them and say, well, what are you going to do when your son graduates or your daughter marries or you become a grandparent? You know, all of these things are still going to tie the two of you together. And you can decide to do it in such a way as everybody is included and doesn't increase the stress on your children. Or you're going to stay angry and you're going to mess it up for everybody. You made an instructional video a few years back that I still show to all of my family therapy students about a lot of times in MFT, the IP is the child, the adolescent. So the parent calls and they want fix my kid. And systemic thinkers, family therapists don't work that way. So I want you to talk about when you get a call, it's clearly a divorce situation, how you frame meeting all parts of the family, getting the buy-in, and expanding the system to work not only with the divorced co-parents, but also potential step-parents. That's right. I mean, because the system does expand. And the child system of parenting expands. And, you know, your question is an important one, is because I have this with students all the time, is, well, the other parent doesn't want to come in. And I would say, okay, let's think of how we present it to them in such a way that not coming in is not in their best interest, that it is in their best interest to come into the therapy office. And that's what I did in that tape you're referring to, is that the father, you know, the mother says the father's not going to come. The father says, why do I need to be there? You know, and then to convince him that if he's not there, he's really going to be left out. And so it's a matter of oftentimes you have to be a little bit manipulative to get that other parent into the room uh, because there is a resistance and the resistance comes about as like, I don't have to be there, the mom is there, you know. It's, it's mainly getting dads in, but mainly opening moms up to the importance of bringing dads back into the family. You know, I tell young family therapists, you can't afford not to in a situation like that. Just even think of legally, ethically. If you don't reach out or you don't ask about the custody situation, by and large, even if physical custody resides more with one parent, they share legal custody and you're working with a minor, you have to have the consent of that other parent. So reaching out it should just be part of best practices anyway to get consent. And if you're going to reach out to get consent, you might as well invite that other parent into the work. So I think it's natural in how we train 
MFTs, but I think we don't necessarily practice that enough. So I think that's so, so important. What are the other mistakes common that therapists make in working with these binuclear systems? Well, I think probably the biggest mistake for the younger people coming into this profession is not they're not seeing it as a system in their mind. So they've separated out. This is a divorced family. Mom lives here, dad lives here, we can see them separately and so on. It's not approaching them as a family system. And it's important to the family that we approach them in that way. And so I have found it always very helpful to have stories earlier on about them wanting to, you know, what are they going to do in this case, in that case? How do they see their family developing? Yes, the kids are young now, but what do they see 10 years from now? Can they imagine what their family is going to look like? And most divorcing people cannot. Most divorcing people do not get a good, cannot get a good image. I think today, if I were to say what I think the biggest change is today, is that it's become more normal. You know, that the numbers are up there, you know, with things like joint custody and mediation and collaborative divorce and so on. It is more normal now to expect that parents continue to relate to one another. And that's generally how I start things off. It's just, you know, a reminder and an acceptance that they, they have a child in common. So the staging of that is also a question we get a lot. Let's say you can get that other parent on board. Do you meet with the whole family together? Do you meet with the co-parents alone first before you bring in their child or children? What are your thoughts on how to stage, how to progress working with a binuclear family? I don't think that there's one way, but I think what gets in our way is that a lot of, especially people starting out, feel overwhelmed by having the whole family. And that's what I found with my students, my trainees a lot, was like, oh my God, we're going to put them all in the same room, they're going to fight. And I look at them and say, well, they're going to fight anyway. So they might as well fight in front of you or you might be able to be of some help. There's this anxiety about putting what appears to be an angry system all in the same room together. And I do believe that it's important when possible. I'm not too rigid about that. I was in my earlier days when I worked with Carr, we were very rigid and we turned people away if they didn't have everybody with them. I don't do that anymore. I kind of start with where I can. Most of the time it works. Sometimes it, it doesn't work. You said something that made me think, I feel like in our field that systems are unnecessarily contracted because of therapist anxiety. They're going to fight. They don't like each other. It's awkward. I can't manage this. So whereas the work should really be done relationally, expanding with as many people as possible, a la the classic family therapy models, including Carl Whitaker, but out of therapist anxiety, they're unnecessarily and prematurely contracted. So your work is so vital because it's hard to believe that you can really impact lasting change in a divorcing or binuclear family without having access to everybody. So, I mean, you're preaching to the choir here. What do you think we can do to better train MFTs to do this type of work? I think we have to trade train MFTs to be more comfortable with the larger system. Because the first thing they'll say is, oh, they're going to argue in front of the kids. Well, they're going to argue in front of the kids anyway, for heaven's sake. So it's getting them comfortable with two people who may come into the room not talking with each other, or hurling all sorts of 
angry comments back and forth. So I think we have to get beyond our anxiety of working with the larger system in that way. What are your thoughts on expanding to step parents as well? Okay, that's always a a difficult issue in that, number one, I think it's the biological parents who are the people who are in charge of the family, and they should be. And the step parents should support the biological parent, but they are not the people who are sort of running this family. They're not so much in charge of it. I think it depends on the situation. Sometimes I bring a step-parent in to the whole family situation, and sometimes I separate out the subsystems. It seems to me that a biological parent and a step-parent need to work some things out with each other that are not that related to the other part of the binuclear family. Then I'll do that and just see them and then maybe bring the biological parents back in. I don't think that there is a rule to this. You know, I think it, it is an interaction between what the therapist is comfortable doing, what this particular system can tolerate, and then who you bring in at what time. But I, I mean, there are times where, I mean, I've had some interesting times, by the way, where I've tried to see a, a first and second wife together, because they're often the ones that are running this family, getting them to be able to talk with each other. And sometimes that's not possible at all. When there's been an affair, it's virtually impossible to get them to want to be together in the same room, maybe five years down the line, but not too early. But sometimes it's it's helpful to work on those subsystems. And oftentimes it's mom and stepmom. You know, when the wash isn't done and the socks don't go back to the other household, it's blamed on mom or stepmom. Um, and so getting them to see that they have something in common, to be respectful of both of their roles and explain that there is a difference in the roles and that that's okay. And step parents can have a very powerful role with the children, but it's different than a biological parent. And there is a common interest, though, of wanting to support that child a lot of times. So even if there is no love lost in other areas. This idea that we're coming together in the best interest of the child can sometimes be a unifying factor between the step-parent and the biological parent. Another question I have for you is the staging of this. Like Sometimes we will see a family after damage has already been done, the divorce has been ugly, and they now realize either through some type of legal intervention or family court that they have to to work it out. Sometimes families proactively, as they're going through a divorce, much like the spirit of your work, the good divorce, they are proactive. Hey, we're coming to you, the couple or family therapist. We don't want to resuscitate the marriage. We want to learn to divorce the right way. What are your thoughts about people that preemptively enlist a family therapist as they're going through the process? Well, I think if they can do that and they get the right family therapist, I think it's terrific. My concern here is that frequently the family therapist wants to get them back together again. There's a whole group of family therapists today in our world today who really, you know, believe that if two people can get along well enough to parent, then why shouldn't they stay married? And so I'm going to help them work on the marriage. One of the things that the parents reported to me is that most of them felt that they worked for too long of a time on the marriage, that they should not have spent all that energy working on the marriage when it was over, when somebody was out the door. And I think we sometimes as family therapists have trouble accepting that, that somebody is really done. doesn't have to be two people that are done, but if one person is done, they're done. It's not our job to get in there and try to change their mind. 
but it is our job to help them separate in a reasonable fashion that doesn't destroy their family and is as healthy as it can be for children. If I'm working with a divorcing family and assessing where that co-parent relationship is, because I imagine we all want to deal with cooperative colleagues, that's the ideal. But if we start out with angry associates, how do we move them from the angry associate phase to hopefully the cooperative colleague phase? So it's a two-part question about moving people along your continuum but also assessing at the beginning where they're at as you kind of put your treatment plan together to work with the binuclear family. Well, that's interesting because usually you don't have it as equal. You have one person who may be more willing than the other person to have a cooperative relation, to, but they have to some way, they have to learn to work together. I think the assessment initially is not too hard. I think you can see it and you can see where the potential may lie. I think sometimes it's very hard and not always possible to get the parents to be able to see that. And there are times like that where I will often bring the children in and it's painful, but have the children tell the parents how their parents are hurting their lives. And they do. They can be very verbal and they can say very specifically what they don't like. You know, they'll say, we hear you fighting on the phone in the background. You think we don't hear. You know, least you could do is to say hello to each other. They want some civility between their parents. That makes life easier for them. So sometimes bringing the children in is the most impact you can have on the parents. Is having the children be able to, with your support, tell their parents what's not working for them. And that's sometimes the only thing that stops the war. No one starts out by saying, I want to fight through my children. But when they can hear from their children in their own words how it has affected them, it does. It can be very, as you said, painful but powerful and be a catalyst to change. So, you know, I've been referencing your groundbreaking book, which is Research Came From the Good Divorce which I read early in my career and still holds the test of time. And it's good for a therapist. It's meant for divorcing families, the consumer. But then the follow-up from that, we're still family. Talk a little bit about that. And that is from the perspective of these grown children about their parents' divorce, which is also, I think, very influential and powerful. Well, the, the, the good divorce was based on the first five years of the study and, and focuses mainly on the parents going through it. We're Still Family was a sort of later attempt where it's kids' voices needed to be heard. I had an opportunity. By then, I'd moved from Wisconsin to California and had trouble keeping my research together, you know. And then I got a call one day on the phone from, I, I think it, it was a physician, I, I, I think it was a pediatrician, who said that he was part of a group and they had a little pot of funds and I had a graduate student who was looking for a dissertation. I said, oh, I've got something for you. Why don't you interview the kids from the Good Divorce Study, the Binuclear Family Study? And by so they did. And we had 163 so-called kids. By then, they were all adults. And it took a year of tracing to find these kids. And the way that we were able to do it is once you got one sibling, you got them all. They'd always tell you where their brother or sister was. Or they'll say to you, you really want to talk to my brother and sister. So you could get a family once you got one child. And you could get a child sometimes through a parent. Although we tried not to do that. Because as a parent myself, if somebody asked me to contact my kids and do that, I, I wouldn't do it. So I was very aware of that. But anyway, so she followed up 
with these 107, 163 adult children, and we did all telephone interviews. They went. I was surprised at how well they went, how much these kids wanted to talk. And we're talking about divorces that were, you know, parents had been divorced for 15, 20 years, and they wanted to talk about it. It was present in their lives. It wasn't like past history. It was very current history. And they all had stories to tell when they got married or why they eloped and didn't have a wedding and how having divorced parents that were negative got in their way in their lives. So we got some very interesting discussions going with these kids. I mean, some of the telephone interviews lasted almost two hours, and they liked to talk about it. That's what we found is that they were quite ready and willing to talk with us. So that formed the book, We're Still Family. Because what I came away with from those 170, 163 kids is that we are still family. That that's what they were saying. They were saying, in essence, we don't always function the way I wish we could, but it's my mom, it's my dad. And one definitely impacts the other. And there were some very sweet stories that came out of that, you know, where a father and a stepfather walked a child down the aisle, where parents made friends again after many years. And my own personal story was going in that direction, too. I had a pretty bad divorce. We were certainly, I don't know if we were fiery foes, but we were clearly angry associates. But over a five-year period, we became cooperative colleagues. As we calmed down, we recoupled, the children were getting older. We, it wasn't so much forgiveness. It was kind of like, okay, we have to work with this. And as a parent, in, in my own circumstances, I did not like my ex-husband, but he was a decent father. And some of what we experienced and had a negative divorce about was that it was an era of no joint custody, no role models, but just negative stereotypes. And if you divorced in the 60s and 70s, that's all you knew. In my mind, when you were referencing your own life and, and interviewing model developers for the last four years, that they do what they're passionate about. Anybody who listens to you this hour can tell you you're passionate about working with these type of systems. So your girls were influential in helping you name these typologies. So what do your children, grandchildren, ex-husband, what do they think about what you have done for the field and working with divorcing families? Well, it's, it's interesting because you know, sometimes you never quite know what your kids think about you anyway. But I think that, that they like my work. They've read it. That may be as close as they could get to it. They appreciated how we were able to do things together for them. So they appreciated how the, I mean, a little story with the graduation. So first, there's a high school graduation. I lived in Wisconsin. Their dad lived in New Jersey. So the first And the children were, I had custody. We didn't have joint custody then. So I had primary custody, mother custody. For the first graduation, he came by himself and was, you know, very cautious. And I had dinner at the house. He came over, but he he kept his distance and it was hard. The second graduation, I had two daughters. So they were high school and then college. The second graduation, he came with his new wife. And that really made things easier. By then I had recoupled, so and he had recoupled. There's a balance that forms in the system again. And so things started to go more smoothly. Then we have pictures of the next time he comes back for graduation, he comes with uh, two children of that second marriage who are very much a part of my children's lives. So, you know, it was a progression. And what I learned from the kids as well as from their parents later on is that for many couples, it is a progression. Some couples, it gets worse over time. 
they just get more and more distant. But many of the couples were able to sort of, you know, put down the swords and say, okay, for the sake of the children, we're going to do this, or okay, you know, I'm not going to keep this fight up, or oftentimes it's about money and how going back to court, you know. And if people do that, then you can't really have a good divorce. You can't keep going back to court and have a good divorce. The last question I usually ask is always about your legacy and what impact you want to leave on the field, but I think you just told us your personal legacy is isomorphic parallel process to what you have done professionally, but I'd be remiss if I didn't say what what would you like the field of family therapy to remember you for, Connie? I think that I have challenged the negative stereotypes about divorce. I've presented a positive model, presented a way that children can grow up not untouched by the divorce, we're always touched by it, but not in any way, they're not mentally ill because of the divorce. They're doing okay, by and large. And I wanted to challenge some of the material that was out there at the time, that was very negative, and to show that there are positive role models, and that divorce is, is a normative process. And so we have to come up and change, find new language. That's what binuclear was about, is let's find some new language for divorce that's positive. And it's just a structure. There's nuclear families. Why not binuclear families? And I think where I feel I made the impact is when one day I picked up what would be like an introduction to family textbook, and there was a whole section on binuclear families. Now, it was only half a page, but but they did at least note that there were such things as my nuclear family. So I think the impact I feel good about that I've made is that it's now part of the culture. You know, people use by nuclear very easily. They use the, the language of the uh, typologies easily. The good divorce has been a popularized concept now. Yes, and I think one of the reasons, I mean, you're a good fit for this profession and, you know, both... MFT, social worker, strength and health based by nature. And you're right, so much of that work that had been done, pioneering research, but it was really negative. And you brought something, science behind studying these families that was uplifting and and helpful. And I think that's why it resonated with so many readers and so many families. Connie Ahrens, I can't thank you enough. You were a pleasure to talk to. And it was after reading your stuff for all those years to finally be able to talk to you. Thanks so much for being a guest. Well, thank you for a nice interview. You know, for the last three years of doing this show, I have gotten to talk to people that are not only really important in the field of systemic therapy, but have certainly impacted my development as a family therapist. As I said, if you're a family therapist, at some point along the journey, you will be working with divorcing families. And early in my development, I read The Good Divorce, and it made sense to me, and it made sense to a lot of my clients. So when I called Connie up and she so graciously accepted the interview for the podcast. Little did either of us know that that would be the last interview that she would give. Shortly after we recorded that interview in October, Connie was diagnosed with an aggressive form of lymphoma and was given a very short time to live. So over the last couple of months, I made contact with one of her daughters, Jerry, It's important not only to let Connie's family hear this interview, but certainly to share it with you, the listeners. Uh, Jerry and I have been corresponding. She wanted us to know that Connie loved life, and she was a strong believer in having a choice in how one lives and how one dies. She wanted people to know of her choice, and that was an advocate for California's medical aid and dying legislation. 
So in the last two months, she did not shy away from difficult conversations with her family and her friends. But at the same time, she insisted on humor and making beautiful sunsets with champagne, toast, and chocolate. Some of her favorite things Jerry was telling me about. She died peacefully and courageously at her home, surrounded by the love of her daughters, her sons-in-law, and uh, trusted medical professionals. Connie was a beloved mother, exceptionally proud grandmother of four grandchildren, a deeply cherished friend, partner, sister, cousin, aunt. She loved her family with all her heart, including her furry canine friends. She is survived by her two daughters, Jerry and Amy, and four grandchildren. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.